From Step and Connect, this is the Balance Matters Podcast, a neurophysical therapist's journey to make sense of balance. I am Erica DeMarch, your host, a physical therapist deeply passionate about teaching and training balance. After many interesting clinical discussions with colleagues and mentors over the years, I thought, wow, I need to share their expertise with others. On this podcast, I interview leading minds in medicine, health, and wellness to give you up-to-date information on balance, new innovation, and translate the most current research into practical clinical examples that you could start implementing right away. This is the Balance Matters Podcast. Today's episode, I'm excited to share an interview with Kenda Fuller on optokinetics. Kenda Fuller was a pioneer in the practice of vestibular imbalance rehabilitation since the 1980s. She was certified by the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialists as a neurological specialist in 1990. She's responsible for the neurologic content in pathology implications for physical therapists and also contributed to Unford's neurological rehabilitation by writing chapters on balance and vestibular disorders. Education has been a strong focus of her career as an affiliate faculty of both the University of Colorado and Regis University. She's provided extensive continuing education on balance dysfunction throughout the U.S. Invitations to give international lectures were associated with Neurocom International, which gave her access to interact with medical practitioners throughout the world. She was instrumental in the development of testing and treatment software for the Proprio 5000, used to identify balance impairments and determine functional limitations. She also created the vestibular and balance exercise program for physio tools, an electronic exercise product used worldwide. As co-owner of South Valley Physical Therapy from 2002 to 2020, her independent practice has been focused on the care of patients with complex neurologic and orthopedic conditions causing imbalance, She understands the need to identify the impairments that lead to imbalance and determine best interventions to enhance functional status. I have the honor and privilege to speak with Kenda Fuller today about OPK, optokinetic therapy, in rehabilitation. I was first introduced to optokinetic therapy at South Valley Physical Therapy and saw its benefits for a lot of vestibular patients, but then also started to explore its benefits with other patient populations. Kenda, I think it's so interesting how you first learned about OPK and started to use it in your clinical practice. Can you share what sparked your interest and your experience using it into clinical practice? Yes. In 2001, I had the opportunity to spend some time in the clinic of Alain Simant in Paris. And in As I was spending time with him, he asked me to go into a room with one of his patients and um, guard her. He walked out of the room, turned the light off. We were standing in the dark. He flipped a switch and suddenly there were lights moving around the room. And my first response was almost to fall on the patient. And I didn't, um, but I did have a stepping response to catch my balance 
And we stood in this room for probably five minutes, the patient and I. And, and by the end of that five minutes, I felt very comfortable. And the longer I stood there, the more comfortable I got. But the longer she stood there, the more imbalanced she got, which is the reason I was there to help um, support her. So this optokinetic stimulus came from what we think of in the US as a disco ball. And so the light actually moves around the room. The room is not moving. It's a high contrast. So you're in a room that has no windows, it's dark, and the lights are can be moving from the floor to the ceiling, from the ceiling to the floor, or in a horizontal direction, either to the right side or to the left side. So can you explain a little bit on how you would use this disco ball type of OPK versus using more of an optokinetic chart and those differences between high-tech and low-tech OPK? Um, yes, because we use all of the above in our clinic. So once we did um, the research that was necessary to determine that this was a valid and appropriate um, technique to use with our patients. Our clinic um, has a high caseload of people with vestibular disorders. Um, we set up that same room with using a, a disco ball. And so for the vestibular patients, when we are trying to activate the vestibular system, I think the full field is a creates a great challenge. At the International Conference in Chicago last year, um, Pavlo, who has done remarkable work in looking at visual our visual field and, and what it does in relationship to dizziness and imbalance talked about a study that they performed and she was talking about visual sensitivity and determined in this study that it didn't make a difference whether it was on a computer, whether it was a full field optokinetic stimulus, um, whether the person was supervised or not, because it was the stimulus that created the difference. So just a moving an environment or a visual environment that has a lot of motion in it um, is going to activate the system in a particular way. She, her goal or the way she talks about this is using the terms neuroadaptability and sensory re-weighting, which is exactly what we talk about in terms of vestibular rehabilitation. So can you explain a little bit more clinically on what patients would be appropriate for this type of treatment and, you know, versus when you start your assessment and then um, how you would get into your treatment. And then also touch base on which patients would not be appropriate or if there's any contraindications for OPK. Okay, let's start with the contraindications because that's an important piece before you have to consider this always before you put a patient into the room. So first of all, if, if patients are on any seizure medications or if they have a history of seizure, it is just contraindicated. 
I wouldn't take the chance because unless you personally want to deal with somebody who is having a seizure, I have seen a seizure um, activated in our clinic with someone who did not report a seizure history and um, clearly had a seizure um, during the, the exposure to the optokinetics. Migraine is also a very um, high contraindication. If you look in the literature, the, um, they talk a lot about this issue of migraine and um, Pavlo does as well. So it isn't contraindicated in terms of the fact that OPK will trigger a migraine, but if you are a migrainist or if you already have a migraine, you're going to be visually sensitive as a part of the um, phenomenon of the migraine and it becomes so uncomfortable that I think that that um, eludes the therapeutic effect that you're looking for. And the third thing is if you have binocular visual um, disorder, if you have one, it doesn't make sense to be using the optokinetics because it is a high challenge to the visual system. And if you have a deficit in the visual system, um, this is probably not your first choice of, of treatment for someone who has a vestibular disorder. So can you explain a little bit then your assessment of how you would look at the visual system before you would put somebody uh, in the optokinetic room or if you were even doing a, screen, a busy screensaver or the low-tech of a chart, moving it back and forth? Well, I think you do your basic screen that you would look at. You would look for saccades. You would look at smooth pursuits. Um, you would look at convergence, divergence. Um, people with vestibular disorders typically will have a convergence um, insufficiency, so I think convergence would not be a high um, marker for that, but unless the convergence disorder was already pretty disruptive to the patient. So you would look at a basic visual screen and then make your determination as a, as a therapist in the same way you might with choosing to do any other activity. So can you explain a little bit more when I think of a, a patient came in and who I would start screening to see who was appropriate for OPK, more of that subjective complaints, um, you know, busy stores, when do they have these feelings and maybe explain a little bit more of visual vertigo and versus visual dependence and what type of patient would be more appropriate for this? Typically, um, when the patient comes into the clinic and we're doing testing of the visual system, if they're complaining of dizziness while we're testing their system, but the system is efficient, if there's not an oculomotor dysfunction, but the activity makes them dizzy, that would be our one of our first triggers. If they are wearing sunglasses, a ball cap, if they ask you to close the Venetian blinds, if they're complaining about fluorescent lights, if they tell you that they've been in an airport and that's been very uncomfortable, a lot of times that um, visual motion or space in motion discomfort comes up in their description uh, in your history before you even start your examination. So we it's going to come up 
as you're doing a vestibular evaluation, if you're listening for it and you're identifying someone who has issues with movement in the environment that may not be associated with issues in moving their own eyes or moving their head on their trunk. These may be concurrent um, issues, but they're not necessarily the trigger. I like to think about, um, and, and as we use optokinetics in the clinic, and I'm thinking about it in terms of who I might use it with, I think of optokinetics the way I would think about a hammer. A hammer can both drive a nail and it can pull it out. So optokinetics can push the, the visual system or it can make it challenging to use for your balance. So you have to understand the components and how optokinetics work in relationship to that patient who's sitting in front of you as you're making that decision. When, when we're looking at it, and I'll, I'll start to just kind of break up the patients by um, patient type, and I'm not talking about diagnosis, but I'm talking about some of the things that we see in the clinic. One of the things that we know when somebody has a single system disorder, so if they have a, a hypofunction, um, the early research says that you cannot rehabilitate or recover or adapt to a vestibular disorder without light. And in those studies, they had um, they did this with monkeys and they took their a single vestibular system away and either put them in the dark or in the light and they recovered in the light, they did not recover in the dark. They did not give them optokinetic stimulus, however. But what they gave them was a stable visual field. And so when you are recovering from a hypofunction of any cause, you first need to have an ability to stabilize your visual system. So you need a reality check that says, I know when my world is not moving or I am not moving based on my visual surroundings and that visual environment needs to be stable. Can you um, explain that a little bit more in your assessment? How would you know somebody has a stable visual system? What either test are you doing or um, how are you looking? So we're going to assume, because we understand that this is the natural path, is when someone has a vestibular, an acute vestibular disorder, that the first thing that they're going to do is to use their visual surround to stabilize their head and know where their head is in space. So I don't think that's something that there is a special test for. As we go further, we'll be able to see how well, how much the person is able to begin that adaptation process of their vestibular system, making use of that stable visual field. So we know that the recovery from a vestibular disorder is adaptation. 
So the first adaptation that needs to happen that most therapists are familiar with is the vestibular ocular reflex, which means that I am looking at something that is stable and I'm turning my head and I'm checking to see if my vestibular system is moving my eyes back in exactly the opposite direction at the same speed as my head is turning, and that's the nature of the vestibular ocular reflex. This recovers fairly quickly in the animal studies that they've done. So we are looking, first of all, to see if we can stabilize our visual world, actually known as gaze stabilization. The other important thing I think that leads toward the use of optokinetics is the fact that when you begin to turn your head, that as you turn your head in one direction, we know that the world is going to move in the opposite direction, the visual world is going to move in the opposite direction. So your brain has to be able to identify that visual flow that happens as we walk, as we turn our heads, as we turn corners, and the brain has to be able to say, I expect that my world is going to move, appear to move in the opposite direction because I'm moving in the direction that I'm moving at the speed that I'm moving. So that is a level of adaptation. Can you discuss a little bit then for that OPK, that speed of the is that important to know how fast, say, the disco ball is moving, or if you're using a screensaver or even the chart, how fast you're moving it left to right? Does that make a difference on truly using optokinetics versus smooth pursuits? I think that it does. And smooth pursuits are a, a part of the visual tracking system. And when we're using smooth pursuits, we have to be able to ignore or identify the, the, what our brain is seeing as a part of the smooth pursuit versus what is happening in, in the peripheral field of view. So the research shows that um, the best speed if I'm doing visual flow in an optokinetic environment, if I can control that, that that best speed is probably between 6 and 10 degrees per second, which is pretty slow uh, compared to the movement on a screen. So if you get the optokinetic videos that have been uh, produced, I think those are also moving at probably um, 6 to 10 degrees. Okay, no, thanks. I think that's really helpful to know. I know in the clinic, we, or at least I did in the past, use the optokinetic with the disco ball, but then if they didn't have that at home, could they use a screen and trying to figure out what speed I think was important to know if you're following that up with home programs, which leads also to my next question on that frequency, uh, how, you know, the research is kind of scattered on how many times a week or what is the tolerance for this patient that can maybe be able to tolerate OPK treatment. So do you have any information on how long that you would recommend or just based on your clinical practice doing it in the clinic versus also supplementing it at home? That's a great question. And I think it's the therapist's um, responsibility to determine the skill set that the patient has in their progression 
if they have a stable VOR, if they have a good vestibular spinal reflex. So as you are doing your exercises with the patient to, for example, uh, do the adaptation after a vestibular disorder, you would choose the optokinetics at the point where you know that they can tolerate visual flow with head turns, that they can walk around their environment, and that they are able to use their vestibular system to identify where their head is in space. And the way we have it set up in our clinic, we have a ball that hangs stable that is about six feet, five to six feet away from the patient. And the moving lights are nine feet away from the patient. So if the patient, especially if they're standing on a foam and they don't have a good surface reference, they don't know which to reference the light that's moving up the wall or down the wall or the ball that's stable. Now, intellectually, they know that the ball is not moving and that the lights are moving, but their brain has to be able to identify, as I said, the reality. So if they're searching for what is stable in that environment, it's the vestibular system that will help them identify that the ball is actually not moving and that the lights on the wall are moving. So when I'm deciding how much um, time they need, they need as much time as it takes for them to be able to perform at that skill level. It, so it depends on where the patient is. Optokinetic Optokinetics is a great way to stimulate the vestibular system. So if I'm using it within a vestibular program, I'm going to probably do it like we do all of our other exercises based on the skill level that the patient has already captured and how hard I want to push the system to try to isolate the vestibular system the optokinetics challenge the visual system at a very high level, which we'll talk about later. And so if you have a patient who you are trying to rehab for sports or someone who is highly active, then spending more time in optokinetics is going to be a benefit for them both to push the vestibular system forward and to recover and enhance their visual capacity um, to, again, know where their head is in space and to be able to do some of the smooth pursuit work that they need to do um, in a visually moving environment. So going back to, I love that analogy you gave, um, the hammer, when you're either pushing a system or pulling it out, right? Is that kind of how you were explaining it? So that example you just gave on that high-level sports, that's when you're trying to really push the vestibular system more. Absolutely. Um, would be one example how you would do that. So what you want them to be able to do is to use their visual system at as, as high a level as possible without needing their visual system to tell them where their head is in space. And that leads us to our next level of discussion, which is talking about visual dependency. So if I 
haven't rehabbed my vestibular system efficiently and I still need that stable visual environment to be feel comfortable and safe, then I can't use my eyes at their highest skill level and I'm really using my eyes to hold on. I call it holding on with your eyes. And it's highly fatiguing and, and people complain about excessive fatigue all of the time when um, when they're going through this vestibular rehab. And it's really when they stop complaining about being so fatigued that I have an idea that they um, have a better integration of their vision, their vestibular system, and their body reference. So what we see in our clinic very often is that people come in and they do, they've started this visual referencing and they haven't gotten away from it. So they are too dependent on their stable visual environment to tell them where their head is in space. And so that's a condition um, that we look at and document and it's well recognized now in the community that people have developed visual dependencies. And most often in our clinic, when we see someone who has failed vestib traditional vestibular rehab, it's because they have on their own or their therapist hasn't realized that they are pushing that visual system too much to tell them where their head is in space. So then when we put someone with visual dependency in the OPK, they are looking for something that's stable and they go into that peripheral field of view because we use um, our visual system at about 10 feet to tell us, to give us reference for where our head is in space. If we take that reference point and move it and the patient has visual dependency, then they're going to lose their balance. They're going to try to lock in. They're going to hang on to something else because they don't have that ability to hang on with their visual system. So the more we give them the opportunity to try to to solve that problem, to try to keep their balance without using their vision. That's the part of the magic of the optokinetics. So a lot of the programs now that they have set up or the, the basic protocol is talking about spending about 10 minutes um, in the room or 10 minutes looking at the computer screen that's moving to give the brain enough time to fill the challenge and determine that they need something beside the besides the visual system to stabilize, to know where they are, to make them feel safe. And so our average time is between 5 and 15 minutes, I would say, in a session. And I think you brought up a, a very important po point that I learned a lot working at the clinic is that observation skill of looking at are they locking their joints or how are they stabilizing themselves. So if they initially were stabilizing or locking on with their eyes for balance, now you took that away from them with the optokinetics. Now what are they doing? Are they locking their joints? And then how does that translate to just everyday function? So is this the same client in a busy um, shopping center who is now locking everything and holding on really tight to a shopping cart? So how does that all correlate and how do you train to make sure that you're changing, you're truly integrating all three systems to work well together, that now you're not training another system 
so that's something that I, I think the cueing and observations of the therapist is very important to look at. It's, it's absolutely critical. So if you don't see that your patient is exactly as you said, shifting away from their visual system into the somatic sensory system, then what you're going to find is your patient is going to complain about headaches, eye strain, they're going to have more fatigue, as I talked about earlier. They're going to want to be reaching for things to create that stability in their when they're out going through airports, walking through grocery stores. So it's important, and there was actually a study done using virtual reality as a trigger for someone walking through a grocery store. They were actually walking on a treadmill, so they were walking but they were holding on to a uh, simulated grocery cart. And the study didn't have great results because I think they just overtrained their, their body reference or, or trained these people to use their hands for stability instead of really pushing toward the vestibular system. So if you want to get this functional piece, as you just said, you have to really pull out uh, both the visual system and the body reference system. And we do that by having people stand on phones, sit on balls, march in place, turn their head while they're looking at the, at the stable ball, um, tip their head side to side, just to try to keep them from locking in through their body to stay stable. And I think... Um... One thing is the IQ, and I'm curious what you, the conversations with your patients of their expectations, because when you, some clients I feel want to just feel successful and say, I'm balanced, I'm not swaying, versus maybe they're locking their joints. How are they not swaying? Um, in the long term, uh, I'll have that conversation. You might feel less stable in the beginning because we're changing how you're balanced and how you're integrating your systems. And then, then you might in the long run be more balanced. So do you have these conversations when people are in this um, optokinetic therapy of what system they're using and how um, kind of with the, I guess that, I don't know the, the word of that in term of how their treatment's going to be going of, you know, that progress. Absolutely. So, the more they know, the more they're going to engage in, um, in what you're asking them to do. So we laugh a lot inside this room because people feel so goofy and they feel out of balance. And I have to catch them before they try to stabilize using a system that I don't want them to use. If they understand what it is that they're trying to do and the consequence of not doing this is headache and fatigue. That is probably, as I explain that to them, they, that's, I think, what will engage them in the task because they really don't like that sensation that we create when we do the optokinetics. And it's important for the therapist to understand that this is not something that your patient is going to um, enjoy doing, but they are very happy with the results that they get because it's such a powerful tool that we can push someone's 
recovery faster if they're willing to tolerate this. No, like that. Uh, I still remember the first time I was in OPK. As you were discussing when you were in France, I was trying to write notes while I was talking to the client at one point, or write something down what they were explaining to me, and I couldn't write down very well. So it took me a while to get used to it. It is a different feeling to be able to to have that, and um, to a greater extent for our patients. So can you explain a little bit more when you were talking about the visual dependency versus visual vertigo? And I know in the literature they use the word visual vestibular mismatch or visually induced dizziness or space and motion discomfort. Can you explain that a little bit more of what is appropriate for and how your treatments might be different for that type of client? Yes. Part of the understanding now is that if you have visual dependency over time and you don't correct it, then you will become highly sensitized to this movement that's in your environment because you don't want it to be in your environment. You want your environment stable, so you become very sensitive. And I think the research in the vestibular world is really showing that there is a progression from visual dependency to what we call visual hypersensitivity, which is why it's really important to identify the visual dependency and correct that to avoid this visual hypersensitivity that we see. We talk about the hypersensitivity or the, the visual vertigo in relationship to an a maladaptation. And we talked about the recovery being a an adaptation process, and that is when two systems are correct and one system is off. What we see in this maladapted setting is that two of the systems are impaired, and so the brain really doesn't have good referencing between one system and the other, and that will drive this overall sense of being out of balance um, and this hypersensitivity to the environment. Now this can happen anyway in relationship to traumatic brain injury, people with autonomic nervous system disorders, um, other conditions like Parkinson's cerebellar degeneration where all three systems can be affected at the same time or to different levels and then the brain just doesn't, isn't able to create that reality check and the patient feels unsafe and this drives a lot of anxiety and we know that people who have these hypersensitivities are very, have high anxiety levels and we've always kind of blamed the patient for that and I think the medical community looks at these patients and, and says I can't identify what's going on here because their vestibular system may be adapted well enough to pass a test. They, nobody might be looking as carefully with the somatosensory system as they should um, and we're not, the, if, you, if these patients or these people go in and they go to an optometrist who doesn't understand this, they'll look at their visual acuity and say there's nothing wrong with your eyes. 
but the brain is not using any of these systems as efficiently as they should. And so it really creates a world that's unstable, unsteady. Um, the patients don't feel confident moving through the world. And that patient then, when you put them into optokinetics, they have a very strong autonomic nervous system response and will um, and, and so need to be managed differently. So with space and motion sensitivity, visual vertigo, the treatment is still using optokinetics, but you would do this more in smaller doses. You might not add the vestibular challenge on as dramatically. You might let them sit in a chair, but try not to lock in through their um, body reference or their somatosensory system. And you would certainly do this in smaller doses. I think the other piece related to all of this is helping the patient to self-regulate, which means that they are going not going to let their heart rate go up. You watch their breathing. We teach these patients to breathe while they're in optokinetics so that they can regulate their entire system, including the autonomic nervous system, within this very stimulating environment. So I think as we begin, began to understand the phenomenon of the autonomic nervous system response in relationship to this very strong visual stimulus, we started treating it differently. So the, if you're treating patients with neurologic disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, you have to understand what their outside limits of tolerance are. And you can't, it can't just be optokinetics. You have to help them understand and learn how to, to manage their autonomic nervous system because in this case, it may not be their vestibular system that is the culprit, but just that their system is so easily aroused by any stimulus and the optokinetics then just becomes one of those stimuli, stimuli that they can't tolerate. And I think that is very important what you said is that conversation, what you have before that treatment to know, well, what is this helping me? What is, what is this goal of this treatment? And how that all relates to their functional goals or um, mobility. So if they understand, you know, this is going to help me in X, Y, or Z, and this is what I'm, I'm doing and will relax your system afterwards. I think I've realized patients have better um, outcomes or are tolerating it better. So I think that's important to, um, to kind of know what your, what your goal is, just as important to be telling the patient. Always. Um, so another, mal-de-debarkment is also another disorder that in the literature they did discuss that it did help with optokinetics. Is that something that you've used in your treatment or what is your thoughts on for that population? We do use it in our treatment of patients who come in to see us with maldedibarkmat, and we have a, a reasonable number of patients who come in. One of the things that they're looking at right now in terms of looking at maldedibarkmat is that there are really two types 
of maldated bark mutton. One is that one is motion triggered. So that is that standard person that is okay on the boat. Typically, they're on a boat or a train where the boat is rocking both side to side and going up and down from the, the bow and the stern. And the brain ha becomes challenged to try to recognize the directionality of that motion. So that's the motion-triggered maldated bark mutt. There's another subset of this where people will describe this same rocking sensation. So they get off a boat, off a train, off of an airplane ride that has had a lot of turbulence. They get back on the ground and their body is interpreting, um, is misinterpreting the stability of the ground and gives them the sensation that they are still moving. So the second subset of this is when this happens spontaneously and not related to any kind of travel or any external environment, environmental conditions. And so it's really, I think, just a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. So when they look at this recovery and the research, what they find is that people who have motion-triggered maldated bark mutt actually respond well to this combination of treatment, which is optokinetics, which is a passive motion in the room. The, the room appears to be moving around them, and a passive motion of the head being tilted side to side. So what they're talking about is this just gives them an opportunity to do a reset of their system between their vestibular system and their somatosensory system by, again, pushing that visual system to either work at a very high level or distracting the visual stability while they're doing that. The results of the studies aren't remarkable. It's at about a 50% improvement rate. Um, we have tried to replicate some of the studies. I think that it, what's most important is to realize that this, that the somatosensory system, you have to do something with that. Um, it isn't just putting them in optokinetics because I can tell you that that doesn't make a difference. It doesn't work. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and we've used or in South Valley, use different machines um, to be able to perturb them and move and um, looking at different, more of that motion to, um, to facilitate that somatosensory system. I think it's really critical. So I guess that leads me to the next question is, you know, when I started using OPK with some of the vestibular clients, I was looking at the literature and started to find some with patients with left neglect and stroke rehab. Is that that seems a very different approach versus the visual dependence or this visual vertigo. Um, can you kind of expand a little bit more on that type of client versus more of that vestibular client? Well, I think this takes us back to the hammer. So in with these patients, we are not pulling the nail out. We're not trying to disrupt the, the visual system, what we're really trying to do is to hammer that nail in nice and tight and pull 
the system use get rid of that visual neglect by activating a full visual field and actually pulling the neglected side toward the non-neglected side using that motion that's in the peripheral environment. So as the patients see the movement in their peripheral field, they need to attend to that. And as they attend to it, it's actually a rehabilitative process of using the visual system in a more efficient and effective way. So essentially for these patients, we are using optokinetics to uptrain the visual system. So do you find that you tend to use it in one direction versus the other based on that neglect or even just looking at your vestibular clients, um, if you can make it going the room to the right versus to the left, up and down, would that make a difference on each client and their goals that you're trying to treat? So absolutely if i so there are ways that we can do this if i want to we know back from the work that alan samant did that if the stimulus is moving from the ground toward the ceiling it's going to make me feel like i'm falling backwards so i need to push forward for that reality so i think people who have Parkinson's disease that tend to be disrupted backwards more easily than forward, that for, if I have a patient who has Parkinson's disease, I would probably put them in a room with the light moving from the floor to the ceiling, and they're standing with the wall behind them for safety, and trying to get them to maintain a vertical position as the, their visual world is pulling them backwards. If I have someone who is lacking a, an efficient stepping strategy, and this may also be in the world of Parkinson's disease, but I might use it for a different purpose, then I might have the lights going from the ceiling down because that's going to activate this stepping strategy. Again, I would have to, to set up the environment very carefully because I can adapt to that quickly. Our patients may not have that ability to adapt and get that stepping strategy um, as efficiently as they should. If I have someone, and, and they've looked at this with the um, maldated bark mod, that some people, they're, they're, it's not so much the direction that, that the light is moving, but they're trying to, to move it so that it matches the, that internal reference that the patient is describing. Um, so it can be used in that way. With the stroke patients, I haven't seen whether they are having the light go toward their neglected side or away from it. I would imagine that if you're trying to catch the peripheral field of view, if I have a left neglect, then I would want the light to be coming in from the left side and, and moving toward the right side. I don't know if you've read any literature that says they're using what which direction. I haven't using. read, or they haven't clarified in the literature that I've read um, regarding left or right, but I know when I had clients, my first client, 
who had left neglect happened to also have Parkinson's disease. And that's where I started to really starting to assess each direction and to see what their postural control was. So I would have to like start with the right, then to the left, then forward and back if they can tolerate it. And we're not getting um, more that nauseous dizziness if, if it was more just their balance that they didn't have that other component of the autonomic response. I would check each component similar to the, if you were testing um, just their postural control. And I would find very different effects that certain, the lights moving in certain directions would really change how they were balancing. Um, and that would drive my treatment based on, um, especially what you were saying in that backwards directions for Parkinson's tended to be um, where people would lose their balance um, the quickest or a few clients would even tell me it felt like the old ride, the Gravitron, or what is it, that you would stick to the wall because they literally could not get off of that wall. Um, their hip strategy, they had no idea how to move off. So even working on a hip strategy, how do you get off that wall, was an exercise that we would start using with the lights still moving. But that was something we did clinically, and there's no research looking at that right now that I know of. But uh, And I think that brings you back to what you said earlier is the skill level as a therapist to look and see what's causing the problem for the patient, which is what all of our examination is about. You just have to have the courage as a physical therapist to say, I want to try this and see what happens and see the effect that it has on uh, my patient so that I know what it is that I need to do. And we work without protocols so much in the clinic, even though there are protocols out there, which is why it's hard. When we first started this, we tried to do this on a protocol of 10 minutes, or and it just doesn't overflow to all of our uh, patient population. So really understanding where your patient's deficits are, what they need to help them be challenged enough, and we know this as therapists, that we want to challenge the patient in a way that they can eventually feel success. In this circumstance, the patients always need to feel safe. And if we have someone who has already developed a hypersensitivity pattern, then they're not gonna feel safe in that room unless you give them the language or the understanding to take on that stimulus and challenge themselves enough. And then we need to give them all the tools that they need to respond to this in a, in a more natural pattern, which is kind of our basic goal to begin with. Yeah, and I think that there was an article that actually even discussed about these, you know, how do you, you provide these necessary challenges to desensitize some of these patients, but they actually recommended at the end of the article that it to be graded repetitive and individually adapted, which is really hard to do in the research. So as clinicians, why I even wanted to bring up this conversation today was, you know, how can we have other tools in our toolbox to use in our treatment sessions and what is appropriate and not appropriate for our, our patients? Um, and some of it using the literature of what has been examined so we can have that evidence base, but then also how do we bring new research to the table if we're clinicians and saying, can we look at this further and be asking some of the researchers to be looking at, is this another way to be treating our patients um, for best care? 
Well, I think we know that repetition is the gold standard when we're trying to change the nervous system. And so that's one of the things that I love about the optokinetics is that it is highly repetitive. It's the same stimulus and it is a strong stimulus because it's high contrast and the patient has to adapt to that stimulus. So I think it fits that criteria of, you know, what the patient needs. And then I think the therapist does become responsible for understanding what that next step is. The researchers need to understand the entire phenomenon of why the, the variety of uses for optokinetics. And I think that's what we had the opportunity to do today is to talk about it not just as this is optokinetics and I'm going to use it with this patient population. And if the therapist understands what it, the optokinetics is doing to the patient and for the patient, then, and if they've done a very clear examination with a good understanding of how these systems work together, then optokinetics is is a really wonderful tool to have in your repertoire in the same way you almost always have a hammer in your tool belt if you're a carpenter but you have a lot of other tools in that in that same belt measuring um, so I, I would kind of still look at it from that perspective no thank you very much I think this is definitely um, a learning experience for myself to see, you know, how can you, like you said, what tools are you using to give that best care to that patient to make them better the fastest you can, you know, because we want our clients to be able to reach their goals. Is there any leaving points that you want to just leave um, for clinicians? I will post on my website different articles that we mentioned if people want to read more on what is the current research on optokinetic therapy? But if somebody maybe wants to, is looking to add this in their toolbox, is there anything that they should consider that we didn't mention today? I think part of the thing I might think about was a discussion at the um, international conference in Chicago last year, and that was about using, we're moving toward technology. So everybody wants to use virtual reality. And we are all bombarded with visual stimulus in our environments. We sit in, the, in front of our computers, we scroll up, we scroll down, we change screens. So that we're living in a world with a lot of visual stimulus. And so this question of do we then use the visual stimulus to challenge our patients, or is there a point at which there is too much visual stimulus and we have to just look at that as, it, as its own um, issue for our patients that might be an overuse syndrome of our visual system? So this is something that I think hasn't gotten much press. There was some discussion about it. They're doing some work in Canada looking at 
what happens when we have too much visual stimulus that comes from a um, technological perspective and not a natural perspective. So that would just be the, the one thing that I know is also out there that we might be looking at in the future. Is this too much of a good thing? Um, so just that would probably be my, my parting um, discussion. But I think that the most important thing is that we understand the phenomenon that the, the, the disorders, the situation in which optokinetics can help us make our patients more stable and how it can lead to increased instability if it's not, if it's used in a situation where the therapist doesn't really understand what problem the patient has. No, thank you. That's definitely insightful on thinking of just our technology and how our world is changing and what, you know, other generations maybe didn't have to deal with that we now have to change and adapt just as humans of how we're we're moving in our environments. That actually leads, uh, I was going to end, but at least to one question, (laughs) of course, as my mind's going, is, you know, being here in Colorado, a lot of my clients talk about hiking and how there is that natural setting of that visual flow from stepping over a moving creek or having walking and having the trees move or having the clouds do you find that that's just as beneficial as just a different way of versus scrolling on your screen? Like how you would look at that differently maybe in treatment? Because I know I would relate some of my treatments with optokinetic and the, the screen was one that, you know, I couldn't scroll down very much and look at that and we would be doing the optokinetics going downwards. But is that another example of how you can maybe look at more a natural setting? Um, that's a brilliant thing to think about because you're exactly right. We've had I've had patients who had to crawl on their hands and knees over a log because of that visual reference that um, of the stream moving below them. Or they the biggest thing is that one of the things that we love to do when we're hiking is to go and stand on a rock and look into this big vast um, mountain of and valley of trees and somebody who has visual dependency that's a terrifying experience for them because they've lost that 10-foot reference and I think thinking about that when people are hiking and when you're hiking your your ankle or ankle reference point is is not that 90 degree angle that we're used to in our world and so and actually going downhill is much harder because moving down here hill unlocks the ankle and so there's not as much stability and then the world is moving away from them instead of moving as much toward them so if we could if i could take my patient out and take them hiking and give them this same stimulus i think it would work probably even much better because the it's something that the brain is used to there's a familiar there's something familiar about that so that's really what we should be doing instead of being in a dark room about to, with a disco ball that's what I was thinking patients. you know and if there's, if there's a way to grade even you know I, I look at just our skill set as therapists to grade you know 
the amount the stream is moving. Like, how do you get someone to that comfort level, just like you would with a hike? Um, you know, if our system can move that in that direction, or would be a neat thing to kind of look at. Is there some kind of I'm just envisioning some trail that you could say this is level one, two, and three based on looking at that visual flow. But then there's always going to be other, you know, with the environment of wind and trees moving, you're not going to be able to change some variables. But we need to see some variables that you can keep constant to look at that. Absolutely. You could, somebody could design this and it, <laughs> and it would be great. But I do talk, this, is, this takes you back though to talking to your patients and explaining to them why they can't, why it's hard to get across a log. It's not because the log is narrow, it's because the river is moving underneath or the stream. And that steepness does matter and distance and visual referencing. And, uh, you know, skiing is another example. If I'm skiing on a bright sunny day where I have great visual reference, it's very different than skiing on a day where the um, snow is blowing into your face and, and you lose that visual reference. So the more our patients understand why this, why the world moving around them affects them so dramatically, the more they'll be able to determine within an environment whether this is too challenging for them or if it is the right level of challenge. So. I have talked to my patients for years, also being in Colorado, and loving to hike to help them understand why and what they can do to um, manage their environment and still challenge themselves and still get out. And we know nature helps us heal. Yeah. So I, I think that I'd like to leave at that point of the saliency of your patients' um, goals is really important. So if it's if you are doing optokinetic therapy or whatever your therapy is, um, is it relating to them walking in, you know, I'm from New York City originally, walking in that busy shopping center or, you know, in a train station with all these people moving around or a Costco or something that is um, very stimulating versus hiking, you know, how is this relating to what they need to feel more comfortable and balanced? Um, so making sure your, your treatment goes along with their goals. Absolutely. So thank you again for uh, discussing this with me today, and I look forward to continuing these conversations and looking at other ways to help our patients. Thank you.